Hi, I'm Rich Wynn. And I'm Rebecca Nixon. And this is the, the PropTech Growth Podcast. Every episode, we interview an expert in the PropTech startup space, gathering their advice and expertise to help you run a successful PropTech business. I'm the portable PropTech CMO, and I help PropTech startups build and scale their commercial growth strategy. I'm Rich from Richwind Consultancy. I specialise in operations, sales and process, helping fintechs and PropTech companies to grow. I've been an estate and letting agent since about 2002, I think. We started my lettings agency in 2004. I have a business partner. We're a small but successful operation, very service-driven, underpinned with a lot of tech. We started off like every other agent 19 years ago with not a lot of tech. And we very quickly, three, four years in, realized if we wanted to achieve what we wanted to, we'd need to embed quite a lot of tech within our journey. So that's where the prop tech interest came in over years became a growing interest and ambition and informally I consulted for our CRM system and then in turn to the property software group and on into Zoopla. We were planning our own kind of version of Fixflow at the time when Raj walked in the door having just launched it. So we canned that at the time. In those days it was very much a desire of need within the business rather than a business aspiration of, oh, I'm going to build this big tech thing. Again, coming at it from an agency perspective, we landed on this idea of the depository, which was streamlining and automating the end of tenancy process. And interestingly, talking within our company, regardless of what their role was, primarily it's admin and property management that evolved in that process. But everyone agreed it was just a bit horrible. And we felt like the best solutions help everyone. So we started off looking at it from an agent perspective, but then when we looked at the tenant journey, we felt there was a lot of value add there. Landlords could do with a bit of guidance. And then when we started reaching out to deposit schemes as well, it was quite interesting to see them come to us with problems in the journey as well for us to solve for them. So yeah, that's been the journey. We started building Depository back in mid 2016. We launched tail end of 2019, beginning of 2020. Having been completely self-funded, we've now been running three years. We represent probably about a hundred agency brands, very broad scope at the moment. Everything from, I think our smallest client looks after about 20, 30 tenancies and our biggest being LRG looks after about 70,000 tenancies. And yeah, I'm a big advocate of self-build on that journey. I've been on the board of directors for the UK PropTech Association for two years. I now sit on the Zoopla Lettings Advisory Board, which I've done for just over a year. And I'm also actively involved in the Lessons Industry Council. And I've been involved with quite a lot of action groups there, focusing on trying to get the government to do better digital adoption. Two key action groups I was involved with is driving the government to adopt UPRNs or unique property reference numbers as a kind of key reference point across all property related matters, everything from regulation to licensing, but also through to building and remedial works, utilities, everything. And then alongside that, I've also been heavily involved with an action group trying to get the government to adopt what we've called property MOTs, but it's basically a digital compliance solution for the PRS sector. For housing is a broader term, really, not just the PRS. We really want social and everything lumped into the same basket. But yeah, something that unilaterally ensures better compliance, but also from a consumer's perspective, a resident, a tenant perspective, simplifies them knowing whether they're living in a compliant property or not quite varied quite far reaching but generally very passionate about the residential lettings industry and tech and the role it plays in that that's some cv 
let's start on the government side. How easy do you find it to actually get the interaction that you need from the government to not necessarily do what you want to do, but to get something back from them? Look, it's very challenging. We've had five housing ministers in the last 12 months. That's super extreme. But I think over the last 20 years, we average a housing minister a year. When you think about it realistically, I think in any role, if you said a company was changing CEO every year, you'd have serious questions about the direction and leadership of that company. And I think that's the same thing with housing. There are a lot of problems in housing and they are not easy problems. They're very nuanced. And so coming up with any solution needs someone with a certain amount of expertise, a certain amount of network or a willingness to listen and they need time and they need money and these are all things that is currently not being applied whilst there are some scary propositions happening within the private rental sector at the moment i suppose one kind of decent thing about gove coming back into that role is there is at least some consistency because we had him propose all these changes that we've got the renters reform bill going through which is probably one of the largest legislative changes proposed to the residential letting sector in the last 30 years and we had him do that and then we had the whole boris saga with him being sacked for having betrayed him and then bounced around a few times and then actually him coming back in i don't think generally is a bad thing that consistency but i've been saying for years i feel like successive governments have failed this country in terms of housing policy or strategy really for the last 50 years and i feel like there is adequate reason that Housing, I feel, should be depoliticized. I think it should be taken off the political parties. All too often, it's used as a political football. And I think we see a lot of clickbait policies being made to try and win votes, either claims made without substance or rather simplistic views of very complicated issues made to potentially win a vote, but without really understanding the nuances and the impacts. And I think what we're going through at the moment with the Renters Reform Bill is very much encapsulates that we're facing an array of changes primarily proposed to enhance and protect tenants further and actually i think what our industry has warned government and others alike is that actually i think a lot of the policies change if they're implemented incorrectly if they're implemented poorly or the legislative framework is weak i think it's actually going to be to the detriment of most tenants and i think that's the interesting thing is that yeah the ambition of this legislation is to radically improve the lives and the security of tenure of tenants but i think actually if government and a lot of people they listen to aren't careful what they end up implementing could actually be some of the worst impact on tenant freedoms in terms of renting i think that landlords are feeling very attacked at the moment by government. And actually government are pretty open about that. I think they are quite intentionally attacking landlords at the moment, which again, every party has its own political strategy. But I think what's dangerous at the moment is they're doing that without any sound solution that balances their assault on the PRS and the shrinking of the private rental sector, which they're doing at the moment. So yeah, I think interesting times. But having been through things like the global financial crisis and stuff, I think actually good businesses, I think tough times are generally good for good businesses. You tend to see the wheat and the chaff fall away, the ones that ride an easy market and come and cash in on low fees when things are easy. Tough times are actually when the tide goes out and you see they're not wearing any swimming trunks, as they say. But yeah, it's tricky getting through. They're trying to listen. One thing I would say is 
I've seen more engagement from government and particularly from the Department of Leveling Up and Housing Communities. They've attended TLIC meetings. They've attended two, if not three, Zoopla board meetings. They are going out and listening more than I've ever seen them in the past and particularly with the lettings industry. So it is a bit of a one-way street in terms of they're there to listen and they will raise questions back, but we don't really get any feedback on the direction things are heading in. So at some point there's going to be that Wizard of Oz moment where the curtain gets pulled back and we find out whether they've listened to a single thing we've said or not. But at least they won't have excuses. They won't have excuses for not realizing that by doing this, it will cause X, Y, Z. And I think for the rest of us, we just wait for that Renders Reform Bill to take the next step into Parliament proposals and see where we go from there. But interesting and slightly scary, but generally interesting times. That's excellent. Forgive the ignorance. I am aware of the Renders Reform Act, but what are the key points in that there such a disparity between landlords and tenants that tenants are really getting the poor end of the stick or whatever? What's the initial thought behind it? So I think from an industry perspective, we generally think that it's quite balanced at the moment. Most of the legislation that's come out in the last 15 years, if we go back to 2007, when the new deposit legislation came out, really pretty much all the legislation aimed at the PRS has been primarily tenant orientated. I think interestingly, the public perception is that as an industry, we don't want a regulated licensed sector and actually I think the opposite is actually the truth. Our industry has been petitioning government for over 50 years for us to be made a professional licensed organization and successive governments for 50 years have ignored that. Draw your own conclusions from that as you will, but there's a lot of things coming in, but I'll just give one really simple one. I think one of the biggest things proposed is the removal of section 21, which is no fault evictions within England and Wales. It's already been done in Scotland. Actually, largely, I think a lot of the hysteria around it isn't warranted. There was a lot of hysteria when it first came out about, oh my God, landlords aren't going to be able to remove tenants. The fact is landlords most of the time don't want to remove a tenant because most tenants are good and most landlords are happy with the rent they get and everything's hunky-dory. And about 85% of all tenancies are ended by tenants anyway, because life circumstances, new job, new area, new partner, fall out with the housemates, whatever it is. But yeah, 85% of all tenancies are ended by tenants anyway. But you're still going to have protections around right to reoccupy, right to sell. So actually, I think the tenant rights movements that are very much backing this and think that this is going to be a huge win, I think primarily that's nonsense. I think actually the amount of tenants who will get to get security that they didn't already have in inverted commas, I think is tiny. And my estimation is around two to 3% of the market. But with the removal of section 21, we already see backlogs in most of the country of at least six months to get a court hearing. Once we remove faultless evictions, that will massively increase. I think once that legislation comes in, you'll be incredibly lucky to get a hearing anywhere in the UK inside of a year. And what that means is landlords will become increasingly risk averse. If they know they can't go through a no-fault eviction process, if they know their only route is through a Section 8 notice and that it's going to take them two to three months to reach the relevant status to even file that, and then they've got a year's wait, all that's going to happen is that, like I said, landlords and managing agents become a lot more risk averse. So those tenants who sit on the boundary of can they afford it, are they a good tenant, Whereas in the past, agents and landlords would have been like, you know what, we'll take a run on it. 
because worst case scenario, we can serve notice for them to move out in six months time. And then we can get an accelerated court hearing within another three months, knowing that they're looking at a 15 month pipeline for that. I think a lot of landlords will simply go, do you know what? I'll wait. And so I think you'll see a lot of tenants finding it even harder than they do now to secure a property. And again, what we're seeing, particularly in London, is a lot of pressure down the ladder because rents have pushed up and all that's really done is put more and more pressure onto the lower income part of the London rental market. And I'm not talking housing benefit and support. I'm talking on what most people would consider a pretty normal salary around the rest of the country. So the 25 to 35, 40K, those are the guys getting really squeezed. And this is just going to make it tougher for them if it's not done right. I think that's a real perfect example of something that has been proposed solely for the benefit of tenants. But I believe it's very questionable how many tenants it's going to benefit. And I think there's a real risk that could actually end up having a negative impact for more tenants than it actually benefits. But there we go. And that's just one bit of like 15 changes to governments proposed. And it's interesting, obviously, with my job, and I get to speak to lots of different people. There is tech coming out that's hopefully going to help with that anyway, in the same way with estate agents, if 80 people want to view a property, you need to narrow down those two or three people who are actually going to be able to afford it or have got the documents up front or whatever. I think the same thing is coming in, if it's not already there on the tech side for lettings, is T-Life. Yeah, so you've got T-Life from the guys behind Open Bricks. It's very much coming into that. I mean, they're exploring this deposit alternative space. There's some interesting things in there. They're backed and invested by TDS, who's a strategic partner of ours. I like Adam, obviously his background behind Credit Ladder. So I think there's people like Adam who are very much looking at real world problems. Credit Ladder was a great step in the right direction. My feelings are that I think there's a lot of small wins happening in the prop tech space, particularly around lettings. And I think T-Life, us, good Lord, FixFlow, we're all taking an element of the journey and we're hopefully solving issues on both sides of the table for that streamlining a process agents and landlords and delivering enhanced experience or a better product or journey for the tenants. I think there's very little happening on solving the big problems though. And I think that's something quite interesting. We touched on credit ladder, looking at the ambition of why doesn't rent count towards a person credit score. I've been renting in London now 25 years. So I've got 25 years of online monthly payments and me, like most people, by far my biggest outgoing each month. And I pay for the premium credit ladder product, but I've only had that the last 18 months, let's say. But still, I don't feel the impact of that is anywhere near where it should be. I'd still really like to see someone raise some serious money and give the banks a scare by coming out and really doing what a lot of people have proposed, which is why can't you look at my last five years rental history and go, cool, we'll lend you a mortgage at 80% of the rental payments that you've paid for the last five years? Because you've proven you can pay that amount. And I've seen this proposed in the UK. I've seen it proposed by people in the States. It would be great to see someone actually chuck some serious money behind it and actually run with that. We've got issues in terms of supply. Obviously, there's this kind of white knight that everyone's waiting to come riding to the fore in the form of build to rent. But actually what we're seeing, the challenges in that sector are that the planning and development pipeline in this country is so slow that the realization of those to get through the planning and funding and building and delivery 
It's not a three-year pipeline. It's a 10-year pipeline. And at that kind of backlog, the pipeline of build to rent is nowhere near where we need it to be to meet the housing needs. And again, when you look at typically the market segments that build to rent typically services, no matter where it is geographically, they tend to be servicing the top level of the rental market. Typically, they tend to be these all-encompassed, hey, you get a gym and there's a car you can borrow and there's a bit of working space and your bills are all included and you don't have to pay a deposit and they're doing all sorts of things. But I was looking at a development in Elephant Castle yesterday that popped up on my Facebook feed and a one bed was 2,700 a month. A two bed was three and a half grand. A three bed was four and a half grand. Those are punchy figures. That is not normal market stuff. And interestingly, that development a huge council-owned council estate was bulldozed to build that. So we've taken away housing for the poorest and we're providing a thousand homes for maybe not the richest, but up there. Yeah, I'll let the audience draw their own conclusions for that. But I think there's still lots of challenges within the PRS sector. And whilst it's really exciting to be part of that ecosystem and to see people doing some cool things... I would love to see someone do something really exciting and really big and really with an ambition of really trying to solve a big problem and change people's lives. But yeah, we'll see. Welcome to Tory Britain. Get rid of a council estate and let's get our mates in some housing. But yeah. hey, there's people who literally can't afford to eat. But that's not real. It's because they're not budgeting properly. Hey, look, I think like a lot of countries, we have a political system that isn't far off football supporters club. And I think that's one of the biggest problems in this country is people support political parties in this country like it's their football team. It is their party for life come hell or high water. And I'm sure you guys have had this. I've had some very interesting discussions with members of my family, particularly the older generation, lifelong supporters. And how dare you ask why? So let's talk about these policies. What policies? <laughs> so of the three yeah. parties, what policies did you like the most, Tories? Why? They're totally yeah. Policies. Yeah. Yeah. Look, but, we're all guilty yeah. of it to a degree, but there is something to be said for having policy-based politics and not aligning yourself too heavily with any party. Interrogate the people making the decision. You look at every country, no country gets it 100% right. You've got yeah. countries like Belgium, where you have a litany of small parties that form alliances, which you think, hey, what a great idea. They couldn't reach an agreement for 18 months. They had no leading party for about 18 months, although there was content put out that they put through more laws in that 18 months than they had done in the last five years, which was quite interesting. Iceland have a really cool system. I'm always shouting about cool things Iceland does, but they appoint a hundred random people from the public every year who is their civil duty to sit and they supposedly it will be 50-50 men and women and they will come from all sorts of socioeconomic backgrounds jobs etc and their civic duty for that year is to vote on government proposals and whether they go ahead or not and i think that is a great system and like i said it's a bit like jury duty but you're signed up for a year you're paid and yet you are mandated to vote on proposals and that is supposed to be a percentage representation of what the society and community wants which i think is a pretty cool idea but they still didn't Love get everything it. right. They still didn't get everything right. But I think it's quite a cool system. But I'm all for Keir Starmer's proposals to get rid of all these peers and life entitlement to House in the Commons and clear all that out. I don't think anyone should be speaking for society who hasn't been voted to do. I agree. 
So, so we veered off into very dangerous political territory. Yes, commercial model for your tech startups and then how you've uh, driven those to success. That's what we should be talking about. But if we're going to bring it back onto business, I've always been an advocate of bootstrapping and self-building. That's how we started our agency. Anne and I put 10 grand each into the business and we had a three-month runway when we started base and that was that. And was in a much stronger financial position for me being a bit older and having been in the industry for a lot more years, I was carrying a ton of student debt, having only graduated a couple of years before we started the company. So yeah, that was our approach, 10 grand each in, three months to make it work and go from there. And we've never looked back. We've never been in the red. We've never borrowed any money after that. And obviously the first five years was very much a job of make it and reinvest it. Just keep plowing that money back into the company to provide the infrastructure and scale that we wanted to achieve. And we took a very similar approach with tech. I'm not the biggest fan of raising money early in tech. I think I see far too many companies do it way too early in their journey or they need it early in their journey, but they raise way too much too early in the journey. And I've seen it just put the wrong pressures on a business. It immediately takes your focus off the product and the service and it puts your focus the only place it can be, which is growth at all costs. For me, I'm a huge advocate of product first, build a good product that has a good market fit. There's no such thing as perfect, but build a good product with a good market fit. And then that solves a lot of your growth problems going forwards. I don't know if you can call depository bootstrap because then Anne and I ended up investing about 350 grand into the business before we launched over the space of three years. So it was hopefully not a lump sum, but again, I think typical naivety of coming to a problem and going, oh, we can probably build something that will solve this for 50, 80 grand, somewhere around there. And very quickly realizing that 50, 80 grand doesn't build you very much. But no, personally, I'm a big advocate of get the foundations of a good product, really understand the problem that you're solving and the nuances of the businesses that operate in that space. Again, I think that's one of the biggest failings I've seen with residentially targeted prop tech solutions. They all too often come from a consumer journey. So someone has a crap experience as a tenant or a crap experience as a buyer and they go, I know. I'm going to solve this problem because it was horrible for me. And they go off and they don't talk to a single estate agent, but they build a product that they're going to sell to estate agents to solve the problem. And all too often the problems they're solving aren't problems for the agent, or they don't understand the nuances, or they don't understand the legislative landscape or whatever it is. I think too many companies think big picture too soon and raise too much money without really understanding the nuances and intricacies of the problem they're really trying to solve. And I think ultimately it causes a problem for you further down the line. If you don't get that stuff right, that isn't the core of where the business is. At some point that's going to catch up with you. And the further down that runway you get, I think the bigger and more complicated that problem is going to be. And obviously there's a lot more prop tech on the market at the moment probably than there ever has been with COVID speeding all that up and, and solutions coming out. I'm not going to say there's too much tech, but are there products out there that you alluded to where people have just, I've had this problem and so I'm going to solve it. And then some agents take it or whatever, and it's actually making it worse. And actually you need to have a look at, should you just have these X core products? One thing for this, one thing for that one. 
think Gary Barker, when we spoke to him, had said it's 13 or 14 bits of real estate tech that companies now use. Or they appreciate something tag on to your CRM that you use. So if you get repeat, you use XYZ. If you've got Alto, you've got XYZ. But is there too much technology at the moment for an agent lettings or estate to understand exactly what they're getting from it? What's your take? I don't think there is such a thing as too much tech. I think constant products and innovations coming into the marketplace is a sign of a healthy marketplace. And I think like most tech, things go through waves. I think if you look at the products coming into the marketplace 10, seven years ago, the real kind of innovators in terms of the current product landscape, some of those have been very mindful of moving and evolving and making sure that as a tech product, they keep tech at the core of what they do. Some have been quite static and have really developed a core product. And then really there are sales operation around it. And again, touching on what I said before, I think there's a couple of businesses that in that respect have built a problem for themselves in terms of tech does have a shelf life. If you're not very careful, you're ultimately giving a shelf life to your product and service. If you're not evolving and innovating, look, I think there's a challenge for agents. I think for many agents and particularly the less tech savvy ones, I think it can feel overwhelming. And that's why it's great that there are solutions out there for you now. You've got the likes of Kafuffle as a marketplace with Whaley and Mincy and their, their team there ready to kind of help and nudge and nuance people along the way. Or you've got bona fide consultants out there like Ian White and others. There's many out there who really know their stuff. And if you feel uncomfortable or overwhelmed trying to figure those things out, I think there is help. And much Rebecca would be parachuted in to address marketing options. I think most medium operations should either have a CTO or approach it like Rebecca, have an ad hoc CTO because they don't justify the need of a full-time one because they're not running any tech themselves per se, but someone who's got more of an overarching vision about what it is and how they're doing it. I think a lot of agencies still struggle on the procurement. They're still struggling to understand where that decision is driven from. And I think I've seen all nuances. I've seen the ones where it's very much the business DNA to keep evolving and keep adopting. And the whole team is on board with that. And it's a relatively organic process. And that is the one where I see succeed the most. And then you've got the businesses the other way where you've got senior management wanting to do it, but they're pushing the decision-making pretty much down to boots on the ground, foot soldiers, have a look at this product, tell me if you want to use it. Or you've got it vice versa. You've got boots on ground really wanting their job and operations to evolve and a reluctance from senior level. And I think both of those models are struggling a little bit at the moment. They both need to listen to each other. But senior management should very much have a clear idea and a clear strategy and a clear vision of what they see their business and operation looking like in two years, five years, 10 years time, and how they're going to get there. And none of us know for sure, but with big leaps like ChatGPT, we've had a huge leap in quantum computing. Google just announced the other day, AI and ML is increasingly and rightly, I think, going to play a bigger and bigger part within our industry, but I'm worried that there are too many operations out there that don't understand that space really at all and aren't really wrapping their heads around, even if they're not delivering a strategy now, I think there's too many businesses out there that aren't working bloody hard on what that strategy should look like.
and really understanding what is their procurement journey as a business. Because I do believe that senior management should be involving front-end users, their staff, in that journey. But I've seen it on both cases where they're either giving too much or they're doing it as a tick box exercise, but they're not listening. So I think there's still a lot that needs to be done in the agency corporate landlord market in terms of how they understand what they want to achieve. But I think fundamentally it comes down to too many companies being reactive rather than developing a very intentional strategy themselves and saying, these are the three biggest problems we've identified in our business right now. And so we're going to spend the next three years solving those three problems as best we can. And then when you trickle down to the other challenge with our marketplace is we're generally a very small marketplace. A, we don't have the scale of America, but B, 80% of our industry is one to two branch operations, small teams, small portfolios. And there are considerations and challenges that come with those. But again, I think for a lot of those business owners, they struggle to find the time or they don't see the value in making the time to really understand where they're going from a technical perspective and what they're really trying to solve. Rebecca, from your perspective, obviously the big to big play there from a marketing perspective, how do you get these one and two man, women bands and make them understand it from whatever point of view, if that's an overall body or just a particular company that you're working for at, at that time? Yeah. So for those, what we would call the long tail of leads, if that's your strategy, you have to have a low price point. You have to have a SaaS self-service solution. So it comes back to product big time. You need to have a really scalable, simple, easy to manage SaaS solution that you can roll out. People can sign themselves up to get themselves started and only ever need to contact you if something breaks. So from a product perspective, you need to be ready to go with that before you even start educating the market. And so many prop techs I speak to aren't there. They need manual onboarding. They need all manner of things. And I just tell them you're not ready for the long tail of the market. That's fine for enterprise and even SME, but not small businesses. So anything with five or under employees is not going to fly. Then the marketing piece is about the value proposition. And it has to be, we are saving you money. And even saying we increase efficiency or we save you time is too vague. You have to be really specific about what you're saving them. And you have to be able to demonstrate that. So you need to have some case studies you need to speak to your existing clients with testimonials and then you need to get those in front of the people who are making these decisions. Once you get it in front of them and they're convinced, if it's a quick, easy sign-up process and they can do that in 10 minutes, you're winning. You're absolutely fine. The problems I see is where you don't have a quick, easy self-service solution. You don't have a value proposition that's really compelling to these people and you don't know how to get that value proposition in front of those people. So those are the three areas that I would be focusing on. Yeah. If we're just looking at startups for a second, the sales and marketing piece is the most important piece that they forget about in general, certainly from the less than a year businesses that I've spoken to It's this product will not sell itself and they don't have the systems in process. They don't have self starter videos of how you do it. And then they're out of run. We better get some investment now. And then they get the investment and then it's just wasted because they haven't got that core process that they need at the start. And I think incubators are looking at that, more advanced businesses and Pie Labs and whoever else, they're really now trying to culture that, make sure they're aware that just because this is a tech product 
it is still a business in the same way as any other business that if you do not make sales, you will go under. And where can you get the best advice or what is the best way to do it? Get an MVP and then start going out to the market then with a specific process and try and sell or at least get your name out there. One thing that is interesting, and I was going to speak to you about it, Rebecca, is from a branding perspective at the moment, you get to know who the real people are. Again, Gary mentioned it, but we've all met Simon Whale and you meet him, you don't forget him. He's a character. <laughs> he is a brand. It's not Kerfuffle Simon Whale, it's Simon Whale Kerfuffle. And obviously, Christian, with your not distinctive look, your look, you are well known within the industry. So should we be branding the people rather than the actual companies? Rebecca's here and she's constantly going on about marketing and everything like that. So she must know the most about marketing. Or well, I really like Rebecca. I've heard good things about her. I heard a podcast or whatever. And again, this is to both of you. Should it be the person branding or should it be the business branding? I know it's a bit both, but for a startup, for example, where would you go with that? I'll tell you exactly what the difference is and where you need to go with that. The difference is scale. So I'm a contractor and I'm the portable prop tech CMO and I have five working days a week. And once those are taken, they're taken. My max number of clients that I can take on at any given time is pretty heavily capped. I am not a scalable solution. I am not going to be sold to hundreds, thousands or tens of thousands of customers, right? So the people that I'm reaching, I need to have a connection to. They need to know who I am. I need to know who they am. So my personal brand is super important because that's the scale I'm working at, one-to-one scale. But if I'm selling a solution that goes out to 20,000 people, I can't manage 20,000 personal relationships. And if I try and sell a personal relationship to them, like an online influencer or some fake personal relationship, the relationship I have with them, it's not going to be real. It's going to be very B2C and very superficial. And it's not going to be based on a value prop. It's going to be based on people thinking I'm something I'm not. Or maybe they know who I am for real and they like me, but I don't like them because I don't know them. So you can't have a real relationship at scale. So when you're looking at a B2B marketing strategy out into the world for a scalable SaaS solution, you need to be all about what your product is and the value that it gives to your customers. That's all people need to know. But on the VC side, if you're looking to raise, you as a founder need to have a personal brand as in a personal relationship that sticks in people's minds because when you go to build those, that is a low scale. There aren't 10,000 VCs that you can go out to with your proposition and get funding from. You need to build those personal relationships. So I would bring it down to scale every time. Yeah, I think actually B2B, particularly with the thought of Resi PropTech and selling into agents, I think personal branding does play an important part of it on the provision that you've got the right person within the business to personally brand. You can't just force a personal brand on someone and push them out there and hope it will do something. I think with a lot of agents, and again, coming back to how disseminated our market is, I think there is quite an element of trust being an issue between agents and tech. And so I think whilst yes, absolutely. When you're selling your product, that messaging should very much be about the product and what it ultimately delivers for the business, be that bottom line or customer experience or whatever. But I feel to sometimes achieve the buy-in from our industry, if you can legitimize 
where the nuances of that product are coming from with someone who is known within the space. I think my personal branding sat alongside Depository. People know I'm a very experienced and knowledgeable letting agent, and we've built a product which isn't particularly sexy. Like we're not going to win you a million clients. We're not going to make you a million pound profit. We're dealing with a very legislated, very mundane, very repetitive task within a business. But because of that, it's really important that agents know that we get it. We understand what that legislative journey is. And alongside that, we understand what the operational demands and nuances are of within a business. And we understand what those kind of key questions or concerns that sit under that. And I think by having the right senior person or prevalent person that is seen alongside your company brand, that can add a really important value in B2B. I'm adamant that my personal brand has got us indoors that the product alone wouldn't have to date. But again, it's that nuance. It depends on the business and the product and the person. Like I said, you can't force a brand onto somebody. You can't make someone pretend to be an expert because then you'll end up damaging your reputation more than ever before. And if someone's not happy and comfortable being out there, then again, you're creating a problem for yourself somewhere down the line. Yeah. And you make a very good point there about trust. And I think if you don't have a person to pin that onto, which most of the companies I work with don't have any one person that would ideally fit that mold. Or if they do, they're the CEO and they're so busy doing a million other things, they don't have time to cultivate a personal brand. But in terms of building trust around the expertise of the team, around case studies from existing clients in the space, making sure that the people in this business from the right background know what they're talking about and communicating that to the market is definitely key. So whatever angle you're taking, yeah. trust is absolutely key for sure. Thanks for inviting me on today. And yeah, I'm going to have to dash, but thanks a lot, guys, and catch up again soon, okay? Yeah, lovely chatting with thanks. you. Thanks. Cheers. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us on the PropTech Growth Podcast. To learn more, you can find us on LinkedIn or email proptechpodcast at iCloud.com. See you next time.